Valued at over $1.5 billion, Buckingham Palace may be the most expensive real estate on the planet, but that doesn't make it the most exclusive. That designation arguably falls upon scenic little Sandy Island in the South Pacific, off the northeastern coast of Australia. What makes this 136-year-old piece of property so special? As of 2012, Sandy Island officially does not exist. First appearing on nautical maps in 1876, Sandy Island found its way onto subsequent maps through the years, though her existence began to be doubted and debated as sailors failed to spot her where she was charted to be. In 2012, the crew of the research vessel Southern Surveyor put the matter finally to rest. They sailed to her coordinates and officially undiscovered her. Part of what makes this a fascinating little story is that it's been less than a decade since Sandy Island literally fell off the map, highlighting that in the modern era, with our burgeoning technologies, we're still discovering, or in this case undiscovering, new terrestrial frontiers, and data is at the forefront of that exploration. Welcome to If When, Jacob's series of interviews exploring the world of emerging technologies. I'm Paul Teese, your host, and in this episode of If When, we will be discussing applied geospatial science with Dr. Michael Goodchild, Emeritus Professor of Geography at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Claire Bullock, Director of Geospatial and Visualization at Jacobs. Dr. Michael Goodchild's career includes posts such as Distinguished Chair Professor at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University and Research Professor at Arizona State University. Being an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences and foreign member of the Royal Society of Canada, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and being named a foreign member of the Royal Society and corresponding fellow of the British Academy. He holds five honorary doctorates, has served as the editor of various journals and periodicals such as Geographical Analysis, and is the author of 15 books. Claire Bullock is Jacob's Director of Geospatial and Visualization in Europe and is on the leadership team for digital solutions in Jacob's Europe. Claire has over 22 years experience in geospatial technologies, GIS, and information management both in the UK and Australia and is a chartered geographer. She has delivered projects across a wide range of technical fields that include spatial data management, spatial analysis, data specifications, data remediation, and mapping. Michael and Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. To begin, I'd like to ask Michael, what are some of the top societal, political, or environmental challenges that geospatial science is well-suited to address? So let me start with environmental, because in a way that's the easiest one. Environmental challenges all involve what is happening on the planet, and particularly where it's happening. And geospatial science is essentially the science of where. It's about where things happen, what connections exist between things that are close together versus far apart. And environmental challenges require mapping. They require detailed analysis of the processes that are changing our environment. And so geospatial is absolutely at the center of all environmental challenges. Politically, I'd say that the strongest point I can make there is that geospatial science addresses problems in a way which is replicable, it's documented. So because you're using geospatial technology, you keep track of the various stages and steps that the analysis went through. And that makes it politically defensible. And so it's much more defensible, for example, than someone who says, in my opinion. 
it's evidence-based, and that gives it a huge advantage politically. And then societally, I pick right now the most important issue being privacy. Geospatial technology is something that people worry a lot about because of its ability to determine where you are, what you're doing, who you're talking to, where you are in the world. And from that perspective, people worry a lot about the potential of this technology. And so geospatial science is well positioned to address some of those issues of privacy. That's really fascinating because I know, particularly with the passage of uh, GDPR in Europe just Mm -hmm. last year, there's massive privacy concerns, especially in this world of big data. So I I think that that topic alone, we could spend an hour talking about. Sure. I would be interested to learn more about how geospatial folds into that. I had read a uh, just recently the UN World Cities report in 2018. They were saying that over the last decade, natural disasters have affected more than 220 million people and caused economic damage of $100 billion per year. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 2030, without significant investment to make cities more resilient, Natural disasters may cost cities worldwide three times that amount a year, and climate change may push up millions of urban residents into poverty. Right. So, Claire, on that note, segueing with what Dr. Goodchild was saying about the environmental and political challenges, what are some of the client challenges you're working to solve for using geospatial science? It's just such an interesting question because the client issues and the client requirements are so varied. And I guess that's part of the reason I really love working in this industry. I can give you a few examples. So there is a massive focus from our clients to make their workflows more digital, to streamline the decision-making, to make information more accessible, both within their client organizations and in the area of public engagement where They're really trying to engage in new ways and geospatial technologies really lend themselves to solutions for our clients that people really engage with in a really new way. There's all sorts of other issues. Safety is a massive issue for a lot of our clients. It's a really big focus area and we're looking at how can we improve safety on projects through using remotely sensed data capture. So instead of having to send field teams out in areas that are potentially unsafe or at least much more unsafe than staying in an office environment, we can use remotely sensed information from satellites flown from airplanes or captured by drones, which reduces the number of teams that have to go out in the field and thereby improving the safety on the project. Visualizing and analyzing data in 3D is increasingly becoming a great opportunity for clients. Increasingly, data and infrastructure is being designed in 3D, and clients are wanting to have that information a lot more accessible to themselves, but also to the the organizations that they're working with so that there's a much better understanding of the infrastructure that's being built and things like that. Some of the other client issues are things like what's the visual impact of something like a wind farm or a new road. We've just been asked by a client whether we can map the extent of pollution plumes in a marine environment. Geospatial technologies are being used all the time to identify the best locations for facilities such as data centers or waste facilities where you can evaluate many different 
data sets with spatial locations to evaluate the best location for those. There are so many requirements out there. Uh, the applications are incredibly diverse. Yeah, it's an exciting industry to be in. There's a phrase that's been bandied about in geography circles, I believe, that says 80% of data is geographic. From what I can determine, they can't really attribute where that actually started, but it's been replicated quite a bit. And it's interesting when you look at some of the reports that are coming out, that data scientist roles in the UK in the recent years have, have increased by 95%. I saw one research firm, Cognolytica, had anticipated there'll be 75 million Internet of Thing devices in agriculture, for instance, by 2020. So there's a lot of data capture going on. And, and Dr. Goodchild, to your point, obviously, with that data and privacy concerns, it does bring on some adjacent anxieties. But what do you see, Dr. Goodchild, are some of the tools and technologies that are going to empower today's evolution of geospatial science? Well, I think just to carry on from what you and Claire have just said, the Internet of Things is going to have, is having a huge impact. Um, this is the idea of sensors and sensors everywhere. Sensors carried on people, by people, sensors embedded in smartphones, sensors in vehicles. So think mobile sensors as well as sensors in fixed locations. And the volume of data which is being created is enormous. And a lot of it is geospatial, as you just said. That's one thing that I think is going to drive a lot of development in geospatial science. And if you think in particular about autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, driverless trucks, the impact of sensors in that domain is going to be enormous. It's going to have huge impact on cities and the way cities are organized and the different functions that cities perform. All of these are changing rapidly. They're changing because of online shopping which is having enormous impact on shopping centers, at least in North America. And it's having enormous impact on agriculture, as you've just said. So I think in that domain, this is an area where data is driving geospatial science, but so too are the new kinds of applications and the new kinds of modeling that those, uh, new kinds of analytics that those data streams support. So that's, that's one area. For other areas, I think that we are advancing very rapidly in the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And that is really empowering a lot of what we can do to understand what is happening on the geographic landscape, to understand the behavior of humans. And I think another that I'd have to really rank very highly is the impact of crowdsourcing, the impact of data collected from people. If you think we have 7 billion people on the planet, many of them, most of them, in fact, are empowered with mobile phones. So most of them are able to report information that they can see and touch and hear and feel with their own senses. So I like to think about 7 million intelligent sensors wandering around the planet and able to collect information that we've never had access to before and that is enormously powerful. We see this happening in the context of disasters, where people on the ground are providing now some of the best information, up to the minute information about disasters. And we're seeing it in many other areas. We're seeing it in environmental conservation, where people on the ground are able to report 
the presence or absence of, for example, birds or animals. And so crowdsourcing has become an enormously important aspect of geospatial science over the past two decades. It seems that with all the data that's being promoted or created, and I'd read a, a report that by 2025, it's projected there's going to be 180 zettabytes of data in the global data sphere. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, in, a, in a previous assignment, I had found that a zettabyte is a one with 21 zeros behind it. Yeah. Like That's yeah. how big it is. How can we ensure that the quality of data, geographic data, is clean, is good data? And I kind of go back to that, that little story about Sandy Island and what I had seen in researching that was that part of the reason that that island kept proliferating on maps, it was a mistake, but that it kept getting replicated, you know, human intervention, and it wasn't until they actually went out and surveyed it mm-hmm. and definitively closed the books on it. But it, it would, even when they knew in the 70s that it would probably didn't exist, it, it still kept appearing in maps. How do we clean the data, you think? Or how do we ensure that geospatial scientists have, have access to clean data in that world that you're describing? So that's been a topic that's had a lot of attention in the research community for decades now. There are various possibilities. One is to rely on the wisdom of the crowd to say that if a single individual reports something, that's not necessarily very reliable. But if a large number of people report it, that gives it authenticity, gives it validity. That's one approach. Another approach is through the kinds of technologies that we have today, where with remote sensing, we can check. We have easy access now to a lot of remote sensing data, and that means we can specifically check facts for their validity. And another is something that I as a geographer am fascinated with, which is the question, how can I tell whether something could be true? In the example you gave of Sandy Island, it could be that there was a Sandy Island at that location. There's no particular reason that that couldn't be true. But other things, certainly, you would not expect, for example, a glacier in Queensland, which is kind of an extreme example. But we have now layers and layers and layers of information which can be used to address the question, could this be true? And artificial intelligence is giving us a lot of insight and a lot of power to address that kind of question. On that point, and Claire, this is a question, I'll turn this question to you, on the point that Dr. Kuchalis is making, obviously machine learning, artificial intelligence, data analysis, I mean, those things seem to be growing and increasing vitality and importance for geographers to, to have access to. As a, a pure mind said, it's nobody has to be on the bleeding edge of technology all the time. That shouldn't be necessarily the expectation. But how do geospatial scientists, in your estimation, Claire, how, how do they stay current with advancements like this? It's a really interesting question because some of the things that Dr. Goodchild has outlined, some of these things are moving incredibly quickly. So how do we keep up to speed and how do we understand the implications that those technologies might have on us and I think one of the really important things as a geospatial scientist is to make sure that we're not just focusing on geospatial science. The advancements that link to geospatial, so the linking technologies 
the sorts of things that Dr. Goodchild has just outlined, we need to keep abreast of those sorts of things as much as the direction of the geospatial science. A lot of what we do in terms of the practicalities of that is talking to our networks. There are some really great industry groups and organizations in the geospatial science industry where clients and consultancy firms and government organizations and all sorts of organizations come together. And there's a really great community around sharing knowledge and talking about where the industry is going and using collective thoughts on what should we be focusing on? What are the things that we really should be spending the time considering? It's quite interesting as well that some of the media websites and things like that are becoming a lot more prevalent in communicating this sort of information and things like such as LinkedIn are quite a significant resource in terms of sharing advancements, sharing the direction of where particular organizations are going, highlighting new technologies and providing a forum for conversation discussion on these sorts of things. I think also what's really important is making sure that there are really strong links with with key universities who are often at the cutting edge of these sorts of things and bringing together some of that development and some of that real future thinking with some of what's happening on the ground is, is really key and a massive way to really further that currency of knowledge and understanding of where the industry is going. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about how the new technologies are starting to impact our ability to look at geographies. What came to mind, kind of oddly enough, we had had a discussion with the lead for data analytics at Jacobs, and he was talking about for the next moon mission, they're using artificial intelligence, and they've got, I think it's a million photographs of the lunar landscape that they're applying AI to to look for an optimal site for the lunar lander to land. And, and I made the observation to him 50 years ago, of course, with Apollo 11. Could you imagine the, the human team at NASA trying to pour over even a fraction of that number of images mm-hmm. to determine an optimal landing site for the Eagle? And yet with AI, a machine can take a look at a million images of a, a certain geography and determine the best pinpoint accuracy the best place for safest and most optimal landing place. So I can imagine that on our terrestrial landscape, that there's a lot of similar applications that geographers can look toward. Dr. Goodchild, if you were to put a trajectory of the next three to five years in the geospatial science landscape, where do you see things going? Well, I think we can talk about application domains because geospatial science has been widely applied across pretty much any area of human activity. But we can isolate certain areas of human activity, which I think are going to develop more rapidly in the next three to five years. One is health. For some reason, I don't really understand why, but for some reason, health has not been as strong an application area for geospatial science as as I think it might have been. And I think there's enormous potential, not just in using location to understand disease. So, for example, to ask, if this outbreak occurred here, can we determine why that happened? What is it about that location that made it more likely for this disease outbreak to occur? 
that's the sort of thinking which has been around for a long time in geospatial science. But other areas like why is it that in certain places a certain operation costs twice as much as in other locations? What is the relationship between where you live and your likelihood of surviving your first heart attack? How close to a hospital are you and how does that distance to the nearest hospital affect your health outcomes? A lot of questions like that, which are where questions in the area of public health, have not really, I think, received yet the attention they deserve. And I think they will continue to grow very substantially in the next three to five years. Another is transportation and various aspects of cities. The problems of congestion in cities, the impact of driverless vehicles, the impact of new services like Uber and Lyft, all of these are having dramatic impacts on cities and geospatial science is going to develop, I think, very strongly in those areas. Stepping back a bit from application domains, I think that one trend we're seeing now, which is really a sharp change from previous decades, is the development of this concept of geospatial infrastructure. The idea that geospatial science, geospatial data, geospatial software are all part of a larger scheme of things, which we might call geospatial infrastructure, and are increasingly integrated. So today, it's very difficult to deal with data without at the same time dealing with software. It's very difficult to deal with education without dealing at the same time with technology. And so I think over the next three to five years, we're going to recognize that this is going to require a much more holistic perspective. The idea of geospatial infrastructure is an integration of people, of technology, of software and data, all in one interlinked, integrated system, if you like. I think another area is going to be technology because this is a field that's always relied heavily on technologies that have been developed in other domains and have been adopted and adapted by geospatial science. And that's perhaps most recently happened in the area of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It will continue, I think, to develop in that direction, but other developments will also come in and other developments will have their impact. One that's already been mentioned is three-dimensional technology because cities, after all, are three-dimensional entities. Mining, oil and gas extraction are three-dimensional activities. And yet, because we've been so driven by the idea of a map, which is essentially two-dimensional, our technology is also, to a large extent, two-dimensional. So three-dimensional technology scale is something that's going to have a significant impact in the next three to five years. Because today, we're able to look at the world in much finer detail than we ever have been in the past. We can look at individuals, we can look at individual houses, individual streets, individual fields in far greater detail than we ever have been able to in the past. So those are some of the areas I think where we're going to see dramatic changes in the next three to five years. It sounds like there's a real opportunity for partnerships with other, say, organizations or entities to like really leverage what geospatial science can bring in looking at patterns of interaction in the physical world. For instance, like you were saying about health, I don't know what the level of engagement is between, say, health organizations, insurance companies, municipalities, public health organizations, and geospatial scientists to like take a look at 
Why is there a preponderance of disease in a certain area? What is it about the environmental conditions? That sort of thing. So it sounds like there's a great opportunity there. And it leverages back to the idea of smart cities and the data that's being generated that we'll be able to better diagnose how our patterns of interaction in the physical world can be improved or why they act the way they do. But to do that, we need that geospatial science and that data that's being generated. Let me ask you both, and I'll I'll start with you, Claire. What is the most surprising thing you've learned working in the field of geospatial science? One of the things that I found really surprising related to a project I worked on a few years ago, where we were using satellites to map the extent of corals and seagrass and macroalgae in water that was about 20 meters deep. And to me, being able to use technology that was spinning around the earth at a vast rate of knots to map something that was actually under the water from thousands of kilometers above us, I just think that continually surprises me that we have that capability and that we can use that data to support decision making and to improve things like the environmental outcomes of projects, I think is probably one of the most surprising. Sometimes get a little bit surprised that despite the fact that we do live in a world where Google Maps is very prevalent and visualizing information is increasingly prevalent, that people, they're much more comfortable with doing things manually, even though there are geospatial solutions that could really save them, whether it's time or budget or or whatever it is. And I I think as an industry, we need to do more to communicate the benefits much more and to expose people to some of the things you can achieve using geospatial technologies. Dr. Goodchild, how about you? What would you say is the most surprising thing you've learned? Well, it's been over 50 years now, and uh, I think the most surprising thing is how, su- how surprises continue to come. GPS was a huge surprise, particularly when selective availability was removed in 2000. I think if I go right back to the beginning, the biggest surprise was that you could actually do things if you put maps into computers, uh, because that was in the 1960s when people thought of computers as things that were calculating machines. And the idea of putting a map in a computer to me was a very surprising idea. More recently, I think crowdsourcing was a huge surprise to me to realize the full potential of something. This was because back until early 2000s, we thought of geospatial technology as something experts dealt with. And the idea that people could be involved in contributing data to these systems was a really a remarkable surprise. It got us to the current situation where people are both consumers and producers of geographic information. And that's having still, I think, surprising impacts on the field. It's led to the idea of neo-geography, which is a term that was coined by Andrew Turner back in 2006. Neo-geography is a new kind of geography in which there's no longer a difference between the expert and the amateur. Everyone is an expert. This technology has succeeded in making pretty much everybody an expert in the use of maps and the use of geospatial technology. So that, to me, was a very surprising impact. And I'm sure surprises will continue to come in the next decade. And our last question for today, Claire, let me start with you. What advice would you offer to up-and-coming geospatial scientists who are entering the field? 
So I've not been doing this as long as Dr. Goodchild has, but I've been doing it for 22 years and I love my job. I absolutely love my job. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day and we were just commenting on what was it about geospatial science that it's just something that we really connect with. So I guess some advice would be that if this is a field that you are interested in, it has such great opportunities. So get some work experience, start building a network as early as you possibly can and keep knocking on doors of organisations and companies because it is such a rewarding discipline to work within. There are so many different places it can take you. I've travelled the world with my job. I've seen all sorts of different ways of using geospatial technologies and I continue to be surprised and amazed at what we can do. So I would just encourage people to push the doors and keep pushing them until you get the opportunity that you're looking for. Last word for you, Dr. Goodchild. What advice would you offer to the next generation of geospatial scientists? Well, I think the first bit of advice would be to say, good choice. Congratulations. You've, you've, <laughs> you've made a good choice. I think several things. I think don't be distracted by the technology because the technology is only your servant. It's not a replacement for you. And what goes on in your head is as important or more important than what the technology is able to tell you. Uh, what's in your head is a constant questioning of what the technology is telling you. Constantly asking, could this be true, what the technology is telling me? Or is there something wrong with the data? Those kinds of questions are questions which have to occur in your head. So your head is a very important part of the use of geospatial technology. So too is the real world. Don't think of geospatial technology as a virtual reality. It's not. It's an augmentation of reality. It tells you something more than you might be able to see and touch and hear and feel, but nevertheless, it doesn't tell you everything. And so keep in touch with the real world. Don't be distracted by an artificial environment of geospatial technology. Continue to learn because this technology moves fast. Don't get locked into ways of thinking that you learned about in school but aren't necessarily true any longer. This is a very rapidly advancing, very dynamic technology. But come back to the first point, you've made the right choice. And as Claire said, this is an exciting field that to me has kept me engaged for now for well over 50 years.